When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Previously on Dying for a Fight. And lo and behold, here comes Sean's gangly ass. And I'm like, holy fucking shit. Is th- that has to be. There's no way. I, I took the bait on that as far as believing, okay, yeah, I am going to get justice. And once you get used to a lifestyle where you entertain violent confrontation as part of day-to-day life, then you almost expect it to happen. Now, he claims he's not a Nazi. Is that true? No. Fuck no. Fuck no. He is still a literal Nazi. I am 100% a now. Fuck the police. Fuck the system. They don't care about justice. Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains extended descriptions of violence and murder. It also contains strong language and racial slurs. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. At around 10.30 at night, on May 25, 2017, a woman named Demetria Hester was taking Portland's light rail train system home. But on the MAX train with her was a large man who was yelling and raving. What he's saying in this recording is hard to hear, but Hester remembers exactly what was said. As a writer, a paid writer, I expressed to Mr. Christian, would you please lower your voice? No one wants to hear you threaten or terrorize. As this interaction was occurring, Hester didn't know the man's name. But soon Hester and the rest of the city would come to know him, Jeremy Christian. And he replied, fuck you, bitch. I built this country. You don't have a right to speak. You're black. You don't have a right to be here. Christian is tall and somewhat physically imposing. He's focusing on Hester. Hester wanted help. She had a habit of trying to sit behind the conductor's door in case of situations like this. Each stop, I knocked at the conductor's door to get his attention. No answer. For three stops, no one intervenes. Eventually, the train pulls into the station where Hester needed to transfer. And as I was getting off the train, I knew that there were going to be an altercation because he said, bitch, you're about to get it now. So... I proceeded off the train with my mace in my hand. In a black and white security tape, you can see the train pull onto the platform. Christian gets off first, and then Hester gets off. Christian stands on the platform, ready to confront her. And as I got off the train, he lunged at me with a Gatorade bottle filled with fluid and hit me in my right eye. And I grabbed my mace and sprayed him in the face with mace. You can see Hester and Christian moving away from each other, each one holding their face. My eye was bleeding, 
barely could see. So while bleeding, Hester was waiting for a train she had to transfer to, and Christian starts washing his face in a water fountain nearby. Hester is watching her attacker recover. Then the police show up. According to Hester, she tries to explain to the police that the assailant is directly behind them. The police officer replies, No, I asked him. He said he had nothing to do with it. A transit employee eventually ID'd Christian as the attacker. But as officers were interviewing witnesses, Christian walked away. How am I supposed to feel protected? We just watched him walk away. He stated that he did the best he could. He asked me if there's anything else I can do. I said, yes, catch him because he's going to harm or kill someone. Remember the last episode when I told you about a Patriot Prayer event in the Montevilla neighborhood where Sean and Micah counter-demonstrated? Remember the man giving Nazi salutes and being confrontational with everyone? The man who nearly got into a fight with Sean? That's Jeremy Christian. This encounter with Hester was under a month later. Demetria Hester tried to warn police about Jeremy Christian that night, but he walked away without facing any charges. Roughly three months later, Hester held a press conference. She had stayed silent, but a week after the car attack in Charlottesville, after the Unite the Right rally, Hester told her story. She had been quickly proven correct. Extremism without intervention, without consequences, turns deadly. The signs were also clear to the anti-fascists who'd encountered Christian and Montevilla. You could see the anger and the hatred in him. I mean, it was scary. It was like, oh my God. You could tell this person was going to kill somebody. You didn't know when it was going to happen, but you could tell. People in Sean's world had been warning each other about the dangers of people attracted to these far-right movements. Those warnings went mostly ignored as oddities of protests. But those dangers were real, and soon the rest of Portland would come to see what anti-fascists had been saying, that a deadly threat was upon them. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. If you decide to make a decision like I made, be very prepared for the fact that your life could not change at all, right? (laughs) Or every single aspect of it ever could change 
dramatically. It's a Friday afternoon, May 26, 2017, around 4 p.m. Micah Fletcher's on the MAX train, Portland's light rail system. He's 21 years old, he's in college, he has a backpack, he's wearing a Deadpool shirt, and listening to music on noise-canceling headphones. So in order for me to hear something about them, it would have to be something serious. Micah's towards the front of the train. He hears yelling towards the back, and he felt a responsibility to go check it out. I saw what appeared to be uh, a gentleman with a ponytail uh, screaming at uh, what appeared to be two young women, and just very, very angry. Micah was seeing Jeremy Christian. He's back on the MAX train a day after attacking Demetria Hester. But nobody knows that yet. On this day, Christian was yelling in the direction of two black teenage girls. One is in a zip-up sweatshirt, the other's wearing a hijab. Micah spoke up. I said, that's fucked up. You can't yell at kids like that. Micah and another man interrupt Christian, taking his attention away from the teens. In videos from that day, you can see that once Christian is distracted, Micah turns his back. He feels like Christian can just be ignored now. Jeremy Christian grew up in what was a rough area of Portland as well. Fights were part of growing up. At 16, he got a GED. He worked at a pizza shop, and then in 2002, he robbed a convenience store. Police caught up with Christian while he was trying to get away on a bike. Christian pulled out a gun, and police shot him in the face. To this day, there's an indentation on his face. One of the officers reported that Christian said he had planned to kill himself, not fire at the officers. His best friend's mom pleaded with one of his attorneys that Christian be given help. He ended up serving more than seven years in Oregon prisons. Christian told friends he was put in solitary confinement multiple times for fighting while in prison. After that, Christian's life deteriorated. He was in and out of jails. He'd post a poem on Facebook. What am I in this world anyway? A waste of a life? A waste of time? I've never done a thing worth doing. In the years leading up to this day, Christian started drinking heavily. One of his friends from childhood put it this way. The dude got shot in the face, went to jail, and when he got back, he was just messed up. He wasn't the same person. He didn't actually receive any rehabilitation while he was in prison. The opposite happened. As the 2016 election was approaching, Christian's posts became political and all over the place. He claimed to love Bernie Sanders, but he would also post racist, misogynistic, anti-Semitic things on the internet. He talked about decapitating people who circumcise babies. Around a month before this day on the train, Christian got in a Facebook argument with someone who he says was affiliated with Antifa. And at that point, Antifa became a fixation for him. Then he went to a Patriot Prayer event. Then he threw a Gatorade bottle at Demetria Hester. And then there was today. All of a sudden, there was a sound. Uh, it sounded like a very sharp and loud strike. Video shows that while Micah had his back turned to Christian, another man, Talijam Namkai Meche, had moved near Christian. Christian slapped Talijam's phone out of his hands, which created the sound. I turned and I looked and I saw Jeremy Christian uh, standing nose to nose with somebody else. And what I saw was this tall, spindly man with curly red hair, white dress shirt and beige uh, slacks. Uh, what I saw 
was somebody that had probably never been in an altercation in their life. Better yet, a full-on fist fight uh, with somebody that is screaming on a train. The next thing that I do is just immediately rush towards the situation and try to get in between the two of them before things can escalate. Both of these men were over six feet tall. Micah came up to their noses. But remember, Micah grew up in Felony Flats alongside Sean. He'd been in fights and he'd set up to men bigger than him before. So Micah got in Christian's face. By the time he's close to Christian, he recognizes him. He remembered him from just under a month ago in Mont Villa. This is the guy that was sick hiling. This is the guy who almost got in a fight with Sean. The first thing that ended up happening was that I was pushed rather hard against, there's a rubber section in the train that allows it to bend and I was pushed towards that. All this audio is from Micah testifying at Christian's trial. Footage from that day breaks down all the chaos into manageable details. When Micah was shoved, he reacts like a fighter. He stumbles just a step or two, then he tosses his backpack to the side. He moves forward again, and Christian shoves to lesion. And it was at that point that I then grabbed him by the collar and the back of the his right and my left of the shoulder of his shirt, and I began to move him away. Micah tosses Christian. Christian falls but catches himself on the rails. Micah shoves him again down into a seat. Now it's just Micah in front of Christian, telling him to get off the train. Christian says something like, hit me again. I shoved him another time. This time he was actually quite prepared for it. I thought he punched me. I was getting ready to put my hands up to guard for another one. And then I noticed there was blood on my fingers. I was like, that's odd. Then I realized there was blood on my shirt, a lot of it. And then I realized it was coming out of my neck. Micah comes towards Christian, and Christian swings what looks like a right hook. But instead of landing a punch, he actually sticks a knife into Micah's throat. Micah stumbles out of the train. Christian gets off shortly after Micah. Micah's trying not to panic, trying to lower his heart rate, to not push more blood out of his neck. Eventually, a man comes to put pressure on the wound. Someone hands him a baby blanket to press against the wound to slow the bleeding. A woman strokes Micah's arm while they wait for help. He asks people with him to use his phone so he can call his mom. He downplays the injury on the phone, but wanted to talk to her. Micah believed he was about to die. While he was inside the train, Christian stabbed Talesia Namkai Meche multiple times. Another man, Ricky Best, tried to intervene and was stabbed multiple times. Talesian was 23 years old. He died later at the hospital. On a stretcher, he told a woman who was helping him, tell everyone on the train I love them. Ricky Best died on the train. He was an army veteran. He was a father of four. His son later said, he couldn't just stand by and do nothing. He died fighting the good fight, protecting the innocent. As the train car fills with blood, Christian steps off the train. He's holding the knife in front of him, and people move out of his way. He walks a couple of blocks. Christian tries to wash the blood off his arms with soda. Eventually, police surround him. After a standoff, Christian threw his knife towards a police vehicle and was arrested by police officers. According to the police, it seemed like Christian was giving up. Christian put his hands behind his back, but when an officer went to handcuff him, Christian pulled away, 
multiple officers wrestle with Christian, eventually cuffing him. After giving Nazi salutes in public and harassing Dimitri Hester, Christian was finally in the back of a squad car, off the street. There were countless moments when government institutions could have stepped in and prevented this kind of tragedy. They were supposed to be a safety net, supposed to be a system that protects the innocent, people like Demetria Hester and the teenage girls on the train that day. Instead, the last line of defense was just three guys who had been on a train. Ricky Bess, an army vet, Talijim Namkai Meche, a student, and Micah Fletcher, a poet and anti-fascist. More after the break. Police suspect maybe a possible hate crime, and federal investigators are now involved. The Max train stabbing became national news. The mayor, Ted Wheeler, addressed the tragedy. Our community remains in shock and mourning. But we're also tremendously grateful to our heroes for their selflessness. Their heroism is now part of the legacy and the history of this great city. In a 2018 interview, Joey Gibson leader of many of the far-right rallies in Portland that turned into brawls. The organizer of the event, where Christian almost got into a fight with Sean, argued that Christian had so many conflicting beliefs that you couldn't take any of them seriously. Shortly after this tragedy, Gibson organized another far-right rally in Portland. It wasn't much different from the one that had attracted Christian in Montevilla. In the wake of a hate crime that drew national attention, there were calls for Joey Gibson to cancel his event but he proceeded anyway. The mayor condemned the rally. I'm appealing to the organizers of the alt-right events to cancel the events. There is never a place for bigotry or hatred in our community, and especially not right now. Mayor said he didn't want the groups associated with Christian to hold events in Portland. Gregory McKelvey highlighted that people were out there opposing these groups. Antifa confronted Jeremy Christian in Montevilla and were called thugs for doing so. So if Christian would have been stabbed one of them instead of the two heroes on the Max train, would we still refer to them as thugs? If we wait until a hero dies to applaud them for standing up to fascism, then we are discouraging such bravery. Tensions were high, and there was a memorial held at the train stop where the killings took place. A videographer who had been with Gibson at Montevilla came to film the people mourning. Sean was also there. Don't touch me, don't touch the camera. Don't touch me, don't touch the camera. Sean is wearing a shirt that says anti-racist thug. And he's calm, trying to keep things quiet. He's acting as security while other people mourn. And you're trying to hear to disturb the peace of people trying to breathe right now. There was roughly two years between the Max stabbing and Sean's death. They were hard times for both Sean and Micah but they tried to be there for one another. In the aftermath of the stabbings, Micah was uncomfortable being called a hero. He was uncomfortable with an easy narrative. Sean was one of the people who understood that. He was one of the only people that showed up in the hospital for me that didn't make, make what happened to me about some stupid fucking culture war. He just asked me how I was doing. That was it. And if I needed anything, and that was it. How'd you feel when you saw him? I was, I was very relieved. Michael was grateful for the support, but the trauma changed him. I'm actually missing uh, one of my jugular veins because of it. It was a millimeter away from hitting the carotid, and if it had, I would have died. Um, guaranteed, pretty much. 
It's the visible legacy of what happened. But his life changed completely. For basically the entirety of the nine months after the stabbing, I was drunk and high on cocaine. Like, and I mean all day, every day. Like the second I woke up, beer in hand, drinking, okay? Um, at night, I'm hitting the clubs. I'm doing lines after lines. Uh, I'm doing everything humanly possible because I can't get the, 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 the sensory memories out of my mind of what happened on the train. Like, like, like people don't think about the fact that blood has a smell. And when enough of it pools on the floor, it has a texture too. It's sticky. Not quite like honey sticky, but like, uh, like if you spill a soda and you wipe it up, you still feel that little, that little grip to the floor and that little rip as you come off of it. And it's just like all of that shit would keep me up at night. When Micah was up at night, alone and scared, Sean was there. I'm fucking sobbing. I'm drunk. I'm freshly stabbed. It's fucking three in the morning. I'm, I'm calling everybody. I don't know who's picking up their phone, except for Sean. Micah doesn't know if Sean was awake researching fascists or if he was playing video games. But whatever Sean was up to at 3 a.m., he agrees to come over. He goes, all right, kid, hold up. He lets me babble at him drunk for fucking an hour, probably an hour and a half. Like it was nothing. He says, hey, I love you, kid. What does that mean to have a friend like that? It's everything, man. Ah. Uh, my deepest regret even now is that I didn't get to be around him enough. Like, this isn't new. It's not. And what's funny, too, is because we're, we're the United States of America, people need simple answers. We don't like the fact that life is complicated, so we want simple answers, right? Micah doesn't talk to press much anymore, but he came to the apartment to meet us at around 7 p.m., wearing a red shirt, green bomber jacket, suspenders, and blue jeans cuffed with clean black boots. His head was shaved. Micah was dressed like an anti-racist skinhead. This interview happened at the last minute. Laura helped set it up. When we started reporting on the story, I knew Micah as the survivor of the Max attack. But I didn't know he was a friend of Sean's. I didn't know Sean had taught him martial arts or helped him get into activism. Micah only agreed to talk to us because it was about his friend, and Laura asked him to. A lot of people would probably say it's a good thing he got radicalized. I don't know if that's true. Micah isn't saying he disagrees with Sean's beliefs. He says that anti-fascism organizing as an underlying meaning for Sean's life might have been unhealthy for Sean. With him, there was like a darkness to it. It's not as simple as saying anger or sadness, but a genuine like a discontentment with his life. And I feel to this day like that's a lot of why he got into this. He grew up feeling very powerless and he hated watching other people go through what he had to go through. And I truly feel like to this day, this was kind of his way of finally having an opportunity to fight back against that, you know? Like the outlet he chose might've not been the best for him. I'm just not sure. What I've found in my journey through this little thing we call activism, um, is that I found that a lot of people use this to avoid their own shit. Not all. I wouldn't even necessarily say most. I'd say a lot. A lot of people are doing this because they don't have health care. 
So there is no fucking therapy happening. There's no medication. There's no taking care of yourself. But you can get revenge. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, I can't go deal with my trauma. But I can fuck up the cop that gave it to me. Micah would see Sean after actions. And like Laura said, Sean was usually drained. Micah said he would look haggard. It seemed like having an ideology that could cohesively answer the questions he had on why life was so painful for him and the people he loved and why it seemed like no one cared. I think that answer gave him a level of solace that nothing had before. I worry, I have no proof, but I worry that it got in the way of him finding more personal answers to those questions that would have been more healing for him. Do you remember the last time that you talked to him? Yeah. Yeah, I do. It was in 2019. So. A little more than two years after the stabbing. Micah says that Sean came over and opened up. Sean was in his early 20s by this point. Being a teen at Occupy felt like a lifetime ago. He had been researching neo-Nazis and going into direct actions for nearly a decade. And now he had responsibilities and problems and things that come with adult life. Bills, relationships, rent. At that time, he was working at a junk hauling company. And he was just talking about how fucking miserable it was and he hated it. And he was just like, man, I just feel really hopeless a lot of days nowadays, you know what I mean? You could see it. It was sad. The kid was lonely. He was trying to figure it out and he just felt fucking hopeless. And I'm like, yeah, I get that, man, but... You know, it gets better. Shit, shit's going to get better. Years of going to protests and sacrificing while seeing the city largely unchanged had made Sean tired and nihilistic at times, according to Micah. He was a problematic little shit that ran his mouth too much. He said all the wrong things to all the wrong people at all the wrong time. But when you fucking needed him, he was there every time. Every single fucking time. Especially when it was inconvenient. You know, he was able to be there for me. He's dead. I don't get to do shit for him. I don't get to pay that back. Micah felt uncomfortable being called a hero. He did what he thought was right, and he says that Sean did that throughout his whole life. But Micah ended up in a situation that was easy to portray on television. It's not like with me. I got hurt at the right place at the right time for CNN. I was useful, and therefore I became renowned. Sean's not useful. Sean doesn't fit in boxes. Sean isn't somebody you can cut into a soundbite and sell to the fucking Boston Times. And therefore, no one fucking know. Micah believes that Sean didn't die in a way that incentivizes the police to solve this case. So the case will go unsolved. But he hopes that our investigation will at least result in more information. Ideally, the police reports. And so, this is the closest thing I will ever have to closure. Is at a minimum, knowing what a couple of professionals that are supposedly good at their jobs say happened. And I'd like that. It would help. It would help me sleep a little better. Can I ask you, what do you want to know? Like, here's the thing. I'm not a fucking cowboy. This is in the Midwest and nobody's doing a lynch party. I just want to know what actually happened to my friend. I want to know all of it. Laura feels certain she knows who killed Sean. But Micah isn't convinced. He had been witness to two murders. And while others were calling him a hero, 
he wasn't sure if he was the one to blame. I spent three years thinking that I'm, I got two people killed. Micah believed that he instigated things on the train, that he took it from a verbal altercation to a physical one. He thought he hit Christian first. I spent three years, three, thinking I was the first person to touch somebody and then two people died, only to find out later on that I was not. It's a pretty fucking important detail. So the story from the friends who were there that night, coupled with some internet sleuthing, isn't enough for Micah to explain what happened. Yeah, like, I want the information. Because I want to know, like, what the fuck's going on here? I want there to be a trial. I want shit to happen. Who killed my friend? Why they killed my friend? Were they afraid? Were they not afraid? Like, what, what the fuck happened to my friend? Because they meant a lot to a lot of people, and now they're a fucking stain. Quite literally. I, I showed up the day after, man. I saw it. I saw the streak of his blood across the pavement. So Micah's wish for something more conclusive would need to come from the police. But law enforcement isn't saying anything. And Micah, having grown up in the same neighborhoods as Sean, doesn't have a lot of faith in the police. We get to hope that maybe these fucking dipsticks did their job for once. And you know what's fucked? This is the one person where if they didn't do their job, I wouldn't be shocked. This kid, they fucking hated this kid. You said you wanted to see a trial. I know some people we talk to in the community don't don't believe in trials, don't believe in like prisons or what do you what do you think? Well, it's like this. There's a quote. I think Malcolm X is the one that said it. He goes, listen, when you stab me in the back with a knife nine inches deep, I do not heal. When you grab the knife and you pull it out three inches, I don't heal, nor six, nor nine. And when you fully remove the knife from my back, I don't heal. It's not until you've applied a Band-Aid, antiseptic, given it about a month, and then finally released it. That's what healing is, right? Micah doesn't believe that a trial, conviction, and prison sentence is healing or justice. So here's the thing. We are very much concerned with the abolition of police and the metamorphosis of this fucked up system into a new system right now. And that's a good thing. But there is such a thing as band-aids. Sometimes you gotta just stop the fucking bleeding. Knowing what happened, and if the police made a good faith effort to solve the case, at least gives him something. I just wanna know what happened. There's no fucking justice. I don't give a fuck what happens to the scumbag that kills him, he's dead. He's not coming back. His little sister, his brother, his mom, they, they lost him, he's gone. I just, I just wanna know what actually happened. Eight months after Sean's death, Jeremy Christian was sentenced to two life sentences in prison without parole. Micah participated in the trial. Micah gave what's called an impact statement something during sentencing that allows victims to say their piece. He talked about his struggles with addiction and mental health and how the resources that helped him had failed Christian. I hate the fact that I am essentially saying something that makes it sound like I have an iota of shit to give for the man that essentially ruined my life. But I only say these things because I want shit like this to never happen again. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you a hint. Violence is cheap and free. 
It's an easy solution to a very complicated problem. And the dilemma is I'm over simple solutions to complicated problems. We've been trying that for a very long time and it's not working. Fucking tired of us turning this into some sort of gang-like warfare where we get to just hide behind flags and pretend this is as simple as a name or some color. I don't mean black and white in this case, I mean red and blue for, you know. I mentioned earlier that Mike is a rapper and a poet. I asked him as we were wrapping up if he'd read something. This is about Sean. I treat poetry like a graveyard almost. It's where I bury my friends. Last night, a dead friend showed up in my dreams. I'm not angry, Micah. I'm just disappointed. He was still bleeding from his nose, his eyes, and his mouth. You could smell the rubber on him. Tire tread was a cologne somewhere in the distance. A man who carried him to a hospital but wasn't able to carry him back. And a mother stands a son cry in the distance. And I weep with him because now he reminds me that all he wanted was to watch the world burn. And right now I have the audacity to place a fire extinguisher on his grave and call it a greater good. When I woke up, I remembered that my rage has ruined my life. These angry hands have scolded everything they touched once upon a time that sometimes we do things we hate because our arms are tired from digging righteous graves under the banner of cold empires and that fires come from coals, coals that we must carry in our hearts. But even forest fires only have a season. The trial and conviction of Jeremy Christian provided accountability for the families and the victims of the Max stabbing. The trial took years. It was a long process that began with an arrest. But almost two years after Sean's killing, there have been no arrests. Laura believes it's an open secret who killed her son. Next episode, we ask the head of Portland's detective unit why the case hasn't been solved and why no one has been arrested. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Grant Irving and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete GK. Special thanks to DJ Cliff for additional audio used in this episode. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Equitola. We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Oregon Public Broadcasting storytelling and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>